Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part three of Incidental Lomas, and this is part three as in the last part. We were talking about the spleen before, and I mentioned how splenic lesions are very common. And so whether it's a cyst like this, or a cyst, maybe an old hematoma with calcification, not a problem, or multiple splenic cysts. Sometimes multiple splenic cysts can be challenging but well-defined water density, we see them more commonly in certain conditions, but that's splenic cysts. We talk about hemangiomas. Now, we know hemangiomas in the liver, peripheral enhancement, puddling, filling in. We can see them more frequently in the spleen and Klippel-Trenani-Weber syndrome, for example. They often do enhance similar to the liver-type hemangiomas, but others can be hypodense or hyperdense, may have calcifications. Here's one that looks very much like a hemangioma. So there is a variability, and splenic lesions, for the most part, in a patient with no known malignancy and no fever, as we said, it's going to be an incidental finding. Now, when you see splenic lesions, sometimes looking at other things helps you. You see a splenic mass, and you see a liver mass. You think about something different than just spleen alone. Patient's febrile, obviously. Patient has weight loss. There are many things that can involve both the liver and spleen, lymphoma, metastasis, infection, but I want to mention sarcoid. Because we commonly or not uncommonly see this case, a patient has a CT for no great reason. You get the call, oh my God, it looks like malignancy lymphoma versus metastatic melanoma. Sarcoid is one of the great mimickers. Patients may be relatively asymptomatic. Really impressive involvement. Sometimes it's only the spleen, as in this case. And in fact, when you look at the numbers, the spleen's involved in up to 59% of patients with sarcoid. And the liver is involved in up to 70%. So again, when you see lots of splenic lesions, you want to be thinking. Sometimes you don't know that the patient has sarcoid. They don't know the patient has sarcoid. Look at the chest. It makes it easy. Splenic infarcts are a bit easier. They're wedge-shaped. Patients often have pain. Febrile, there's histories, atrial fib, endocarditis. And they're larger, they're web-shaped, they're not going to be simple cysts. Here's a nice infarct. And in patients with sickle cell disease, we get autoinfarction. So when you see a small, dense, calcified spleen, you know it's sickle cell disease. Thalassemia can give you larger spleens with infarction. When patients have abscesses, it's not incidental findings. If it's an immunosuppressed patient, it's most likely fungal, but the patients are sick. If it's someone who's had foreign travel, the patients are sick. If someone has an splenic abscess for any reason, they are sick. More common in diabetics and alcoholics and IV drug abusers. And when you see the lesion, it's not like the cysts. It's not well-defined. It's not water density. It's not sharply marginated. It's the opposite of that, ill-defined, poor margins. And when you have fungal disease, multiple lesions. But again, it's usually a bone marrow transplant patient. You see multiple splenic or multiple liver lesions or even renal lesions. You've got to be thinking about fungal infection. Now, what about the liver? Well, we don't want to leave the liver out. We commonly will see liver lesions. Most of the time, they are going to be benign. A small hepatic lesion, very commonly right lobe of liver, is always to me a hemangioma. Now, of course, history becomes important. Small liver lesions, when you don't know what they are, are more likely malignant if the patient has a known malignancy than as an incidental finding. 
And we also know the smaller the liver lesion, the harder it is to classify. And also, if we only have one phase, it can be very tricky. So the question was, how do you manage incidental liver lesions? Now, sometimes they're too small to classify, and sometimes you feel they're benign or they're hemangiomas. 2010, there was a flowchart, pretty impressive flowchart, how to go around. 2017, that flowchart was redone and a little bit less complicated. Criteria, very much like pancreatic cysts, depend on size, depend on history, and depend on what features you can get. It does make the point why doing the study correctly makes it very easy. If you have a poor venous phase only, it's hard to figure out what the heck is going on. Now, in this uh, incidental committee, of course, the goal was to try to figure out how to do the least invasive stuff on a patient and how to minimize additional studies. And so low-risk patients, incidental lesions on the risonometer did not require further workup. 1 to 1.5 cm that look like a mangioma, leave alone. If lesions have suspicious features, particularly in patients with known malignancies, then MR may be the next step. In high-risk patients, again, MR. So the, the question is, how do you balance CT, use MR for problem solving? But if you're uncertain and the patient management is dependent, further imaging is necessary. Sometimes people use PET. Where they're getting a PET, that can be helpful. But again, MR can be a problem solver for difficult cases in CT. Now, we do have another talk on liver incidentalomas that we're doing in the f near future. So we'll go into that in more detail. But again, I think it's that strategy because in my mind, in a non-malignant patient, most incidental liver lesions are benign. Now, I'm not talking about a cirrhotic liver where you see a hepatoma. I'm just talking about a normal liver where you see a small lesion or it's a non-contrast study, you see a lesion. Then I'm thinking hemangioma, particularly in the women, particularly in right lobe. What else can we talk about? What about ovarian lesions? You see a mass like this, big mass, solid cystic septations, that's a carcinoma. Okay, we stop there. It's a carcinoma. They're going to have to manage the patient in oncology. That's not a difficult problem. And sometimes you pick them up incidentally. But what about this 27-year-old female? Complex left, uncomplex right, what do you do? Well, we know that ovarian cysts will vary. The range of normal ovarian size varies as a function of hormonal status. In premenopausal women, ovaries up to 20 cubic centimeters in volume are within the upper 95% confidence for normal. While in the postmenopausal woman, the upper 95% confidence level is 10. So again, the age, whether they're postmenopausal or not, becomes very important. And so you translate volume to size. We talk about 5 cm for premenopausal and up to 4 for postmenopausal. And what do you do? Committee recommends short interval follow-up ultrasound in 6 to 12 weeks, not right away, for benign appearing cysts over 5 cm in diameter and probably benign anexal cysts over 3 cm. When an incidental benign appearing cyst in a woman in early menopause is over 5, the committee recommends ultrasound to ensure that small wall nodules are not being looked at. The committee recommends that anexal cyst on CT or MR under a centimeter in size and any phase should just be considered benign 
and let well enough alone. Don't pursue everything. In late postmenopause, the committee does not recommend prompt or follow-up ultrasound of an asymptomatic, asymptomatic benign cyst under 3CM. So again, this becomes very important. Now that's the uh, radiology guidelines. There are ultrasound guidelines from the Society of Ultrasound. One of the things, of course, is do people follow the guidelines? Rosencrantz wrote this article that people don't. Adherence to guidelines was 59%. That's NYU. Overmanagement generally occurred in physiologic cysts in premenopausal patients. Undermanagement was observed for cysts in postmenopausal. And you could see that the challenge is the less you follow guidelines, the more you're going to recommend the wrong thing. So overmanagement recommendations were made in most instances for hemorrhagic cysts and cysts with a septation. Undermanagement was made for cysts measuring 1 to 7 cm. I think the point is it's a challenge how to manage ovarian cysts, but you need to follow the guidelines and then things are easier. The danger is more typically with simple cysts to overuse imaging modalities. Now, thyroid is another thing, and that's a whole nother area. The challenge with thyroid is we see a lot of incidental thyroid lesions. Most of them are going to be benign, and even if they're malignant, they're going to have very long half-lives. But you start biopsying things, you create complications, you create nerve palsies, all sorts of issues. Now, this paper was written a couple years ago, and I think it's being revised on incidental thyroid nodules. It's one of the most common incidental findings on the neck. It's defined as a nodule that was not previously detected or suspected clinically. There's a paucity of guidance from professional organizations on management of incidental thyroid nodules and high variability in radiologists. And you could see thyroid nodules are seen in up to two-thirds of ultrasounds and a quarter of CTs and 20% of MRs. So it's very, very common. How do you manage? Do you need to biopsy everybody? Should you follow more patients? This indeed is the challenge. The rate of benign results is high because cytology is inherently limited for diagnosis of follicular neoplasm and suspicion for follicular neoplasm. So even if you're more aggressive and you biopsy a lot, you're still going to be wrong. What do you need to do? And the ACR has these guidelines, and you can read them here. How do you manage patients? It's based on age. If patients are older, perhaps just leave them alone. If they're younger, if you're doing CT or MR, go to ultrasound, take a better look. In patients under 35 with an incidental thyroid nodule on CT, MR, or ultrasound, committee recommends further evaluation with thyroid ultrasound. The nodule's over a centimeter and has no suspicious imaging features, and the patient has a normal life expectancy. Over 35 recommends a dedicated ultrasound if the nodule is over 1.5 and has no suspicious imaging features. So again, it's difficult. Lee wrote this article. There are no definitive guidelines for management of thyroid nodules on CT. They looked at it closely. They tried to find specific findings on CT besides invasion that would allow you to say benign versus malignant. There were statistically significant associations on multivariate analysis between indeterminate benign nodules and CT characteristics of smaller size, lower attenuation, and homogeneous appearance. The 
in this article by Lee, the malignancy prevalence of incidental lesions was under 2%. So again, you can see the challenge. How exactly do you manage these patients? And so the recommendation was sonographic evaluation of all incidentally detected thyroid nodules is likely not, not the appropriate strategy given the high rate of thyroid incidentalomas, low probability of malignancy, and cost effectiveness of workup. Small homogeneous low attenuation lesions have a high probability of being benign. So the answer is keep your needle away and your hands off these small incidental thyroid nodules. Now, of course, we have challenges. I mentioned before phases. And this is not just thyroid. This is kidney, liver, adrenal. The more phases you have on studies, the more likely to be specific and recognize what's an incidentaloma, what's a real lesion. As we try to decrease dose to patients and we limit phases, this can be somewhat of a challenge. Also, in terms of following patients up, you want to make certain you do the right phases and only the right phases. When you're doing routine follow-up, perhaps you need less phases, but you need to make certain you get the information you need. And then we go back to the first question where we started two weeks ago. The fact is that we've not been good at coming to consensus. And the ACR has pushed these white papers, and I don't agree with a lot of the recommendations, but you don't necessarily have to agree with everything, but at least their recommendations, they're vetted by a number of people. And if you follow recommendations, you're gonna be more consistent, both yourself and your teammates in practice are gonna be more consistent. And this article by Berlin made the point that white papers led to radiologists to recommend less imaging uh, studies, and those who don't follow guidelines recommended more. So there is some value in following guidelines. And also, people who have guidelines are more likely to be definitive. Radiologists who read the white papers were more likely to report an incidental finding that was highly likely benign, as likely benign, whereas those who had not read the paper were more likely to recommend additional imaging. So again, the hedge grows faster when you don't have information. But when you have information and you know what to expect and how to manage patients, you're going to do a lot less hedging and a lot more recommendation, and you will survive. So conclusions. I think departmental and group guidelines are important when dealing with incidental findings. I think it's critical for organizations to come up with guidelines and that we're able to follow them as long as the guidelines are good. And we have to recognize that no guideline is perfect. More information is always challenging. And like with the idea about doing and not following pancreatic lesions that haven't grown in two years, we know that's a mistake. And if you make mistakes, you need to fix things up. So there is an incidental problem, New York Times said. We agree, but I think we're getting much better at it. And again, not every incidental finding is bad. We pick up a lot of cancers and save lives. We pick up aneurysms and the like. Again, it's the balance of the two. But I think if you do things correctly, you're going to balance it well. And with that, I thank you for attention. And that was part three of three. If you haven't watched part one and part two, I recommend you watch it right now. Have a great day. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website, ctss.com, for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.